Well, all kinds of questions present themselves, don't they? Maybe the first question is, uh, what are we dealing with here? Is this, um, this account that we read, is this a parable? Or is this uh, actual history? Did, the, did these events that we read about actually happen? We might also wonder about the nature of the suffering that the rich man is experiencing. He says, I am in anguish in this flame. Is that an actual depiction of the suffering in hell? Or is that flame imagery symbolic? We have other questions. Uh, Is the rich man in hell because he didn't show mercy to Lazarus and didn't do enough kind things for him? Is Lazarus in heaven, on the other hand, simply as a reward for going through hell on earth? Finally, we might wonder what exactly is the main point that's being taught here? Because we seem to move from uh, this initial encouragement to, to notice and meet the needs of others to, at the end, like a statement about what kinds of evidence are convincing enough to make a person repent, right? So what exactly is the main point that's being taught here? Is it an encouragement to help other people or is it like an apologetics argument of what kind of evidences are necessary to get a person to the point of repentance toward God? So it's a really complex passage. There are lots of threads that are working together here. We're, we're not going to have time to address all of these questions. And besides, it isn't even Jesus' prerogative to feel like he needs to address all of the potential questions that we might have. All we're going to do is try to discover the main point that he's making. Because he's making a critical point that we have to understand. So let's try to get a handle on the passage in in three steps, just by noticing what's going on at the beginning, what's going on in the middle, and what's going on at the end. We'll try to keep it really simple. So we'll move through this message in three parts, beginning, middle, and end. And so at the beginning, just addressing the very first part and what we notice right away is that there's a role reversal between the two main characters, the rich man and Lazarus. That's what happens at the beginning. There's a role reversal. While they were alive in the body, Lazarus was the needy one, wasn't he? His needs were um, astounding and comprehensive. At least four things are, are pointed out specifically about the extent of his needs. First of all, he was poor. We're told that specifically. He was poor. Number two, he was in bad health. He had sores covering his body. Okay, no money, sores covering his body. Number three, he was hungry. He longed to be fed with the the food from this rich man's table. He's poor, he's in bad health, he's hungry. And fourthly, this is just an indignity, right? He's pitiable. The the dogs are coming up to him and, and licking his sores. There's just this incredible indignity about his person, right? Notice how needy he is. And the rich man is the one who was doing well. He's clothed well, he's eating well, he's comfortable, life is good for him. He was in a position to help Lazarus, 
Lazarus, he didn't even have to really leave home. Lazarus was right there at his gate. Lazarus was the one who needed mercy. The rich man had the ability to show mercy. That was their position in life. But notice in the afterlife, the situation that's described next, that the situation exactly is exactly the opposite. Now the rich man is the one who's needy. He's the one who's uncomfortable. He's the one who's in anguish. And Lazarus, on the other hand, is the one who's comfortable. He's, he's comforted. His needs are being met. Now the rich man's eyes look to him for mercy. But Lazarus is unable to help him, even if he wanted to. What's the point here at the beginning? We see that in the afterlife, each of these men experienced the opposite of what they knew in their lifetime. They're both experiencing the opposite of what they knew when they were alive in the body, in their natural life. Now, obviously, this is a happy result for Lazarus, right? He's moved in a good direction. Like, this is a really good thing for him. But for the rich man, it's horrible. As rich as he was in life and as powerful as he was in life, so much now is he ruined. And so much now is he in need. Has it ever occurred to you that your position in the afterlife could be exactly the opposite of what you're experiencing now in this life? That as comfortable as you are here, so great could be your discomfort in the afterlife. And as powerful as you are here and secure in your wealth, to that same degree, you could be needy and pleading for mercy. Now, I know that we are potentially dealing here with multiple levels of unbelief. First, you may not believe that there is an afterlife. So this passage doesn't bother you at all. Second, even if you do believe that there is an afterlife, you may believe that the afterlife is good and comfortable and blissful for everyone. That no one, or only the worst people, experience pain or regret or judgment in the afterlife when they die. So that on that, on that basis, a passage like this, that doesn't bother you at all either. If that's you, if you are inclined toward disbelief in what we just read and to scoff at it and say, this isn't going to happen, this passage is for you. That condition of yours to, to disbelieve what we just read is the main problem that's addressed here. The very point at the end of the passage is to try and figure out what will make people believe this. That's the great problem at the end. There's people out there that have to be born. How in the world are we going to tell them that it's true? 
So if we just read through this and you think to yourself, this is not a problem for me, there is no afterlife, this isn't going to happen, or if there is an afterlife, hell is not part of it for anybody. If you don't believe it, this is for you. And we're, we're putting the cart ahead of the horse a little bit here. Let's just state that up front, that that is the main problem of how do we convince a human being to believe what they don't want to believe, like that there actually is a place of torment. And there's a need to repent toward God. We'll, we'll come back to that problem at the end, okay? Before we get there, let's notice what happens in the middle of the story. So in the beginning, there's a role reversal. They're experiencing the opposite of what they knew in life. The middle is where we find the, the instructional part, right? What the rich man wants is mercy, but what he gets instead is instruction. That's verses 24 to 26. He's basically told two things. He's instructed in two ways. Two things, right? First of all, the first thing that is communicated to him is remember that God has already been merciful to you. That's verse 25. He's asked for mercy. He's asked for relief from his suffering. But in verse 25, he hears this from Abraham. Child, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. When the rich man asks for mercy and he doesn't get it, the first thing Abraham does is remind him of what he had in his lifetime. He had good things. The nicest clothes, he had the best food. Right? Remember that the text says that he feasted sumptuously every day. In other words, God had already been merciful to him. God doesn't owe anyone Material blessing. He doesn't owe anyone wealth or a high standard of living. Think about this. Even, even Lazarus, who was apparently was a righteous person since he was carried to Abraham's side at death, even though Lazarus was favored of God and beloved of God, Lazarus got none of those good things in life. Not even, a, not even a person who God loved and who God favored got the material blessing that the rich man got. He didn't even get the basics. Like, he was in a pitiable condition. He didn't even have his basic needs met. Like, he didn't have enough food. He didn't have enough money. He didn't have a living wage. His body was in bad shape. And this is a person in God's favor, a person that God loves. The rich man we know is not in God's favor. We know that because he's in torment when he dies. He was a a wicked, uncaring, callous person. I mean, how callous do you have to be to feast so well every day and not notice or care about or address this huge need at your own doorstep? And yet, even being so callous and so unmerciful, God blessed him with All of this wealth provided not just for his basic needs, like he was clothed in purple and feasted sumptuously. What are we going to call that? Well, you may be inclined to call it the reward of hard work, like that he earned his money and he got to enjoy it. 
I would argue that the only thing that we can call that is mercy. God doesn't owe him anything. An all-powerful God can wipe him off the planet immediately or at least make his life really uncomfortable, as uncomfortable as Lazarus was. This guy got to enjoy the best things while acting in the worst way, while God gives no good material things to the righteous person. That's called the kindness of God, the mercy of God toward this rich man. Not only to let him continue to live, but to live well. Nobody, can, nobody in hell can charge God with being unmerciful. It is in his character to be kind and merciful to people that hate him and reject him. If you have money, if you have a house, if you eat well, like if you eat at all, if you have money left to give away in the midst of all of this, if you have said no to God while enjoying all these blessings, if you've said no to God, no to Jesus Christ, living your life without reference to God, please look at what you have in your hands and and recognize that this is God's mercy towards you. You call it hard work. Let me ask you a question. Where did you get the health to do all that hard work? Where did you get that mind to make all that money? Did you provide that for yourself? Where did you get it? Based on this account in Luke 16, no one should go to the day of their death hoping that God will be merciful to them, even though they've rejected him. God has already been merciful to you. Your whole life, the gift of life, God's provision for your life has been one great mercy. Have you recognized it as mercy? And have you responded to that mercy? We're in the instructional part, right? There's a role reversal at the beginning, and then the rich man doesn't get mercy, he gets instruction. He's getting instructed by Abraham. This is the word of God coming to him through Abraham. The first thing he's told is, remember God's already been merciful to you. Second thing he's told is that his condition is final. That's verse 26. Verse 26, Abraham's telling him why he won't be helped, why he won't receive mercy. He says, and beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and then may cross from there to us. No help is coming. No help can come because this great chasm has been fixed, which makes help impossible. We, we need to understand that hell is final. That there is no second opportunity for repentance. That, that teaching is out there, even in Christian circles, that everyone will be given a second opportunity to repent. All of these different ways that people try to, to lessen the, the horror of hell... Just remember, every time you hear someone try to make hell less than it actually is, it always diminishes the work of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ came to save from hell. That's why he came. He experienced hell on your behalf, in your place. And any time you try to soften the reality of hell and say it's not as bad as it really is or people will be able to find their way out, you can't do that without robbing Jesus Christ of the glory due to him for what he paid for you to be saved from hell. There's no second opportunity for repentance. One of the, really one of the most surprising things about this passage is that the rich man never expresses a desire to repent. Like, we don't even see him plea, make a plea, and try to repent. He, he desires relief. He desires that other people repent. Like his brothers, he's like, go help them so they can repent. But he never expresses a personal desire to repent. So if you have no desire to repent in this life, do not expect that you will have that desire in the afterlife, even under great personal suffering. There's no evidence of any kind of heart change here in this man. Hell is fixed and final. So what does that mean? Well, one, one thing that it means is that it places a lot of weight on what happens today. If hell is fixed and final and there's no change in status that's available, then it places a lot of weight on what happens in this life. That much more weight on what happens today. Today, in this life that you're living, repentance is possible toward God. It's not possible after death. It is possible today. Which, of course, brings us back to the main question. The great question. The question that we alluded to earlier. It's the question that dominates the last part of the story. It's the question in which the whole story culminates. Namely, how do we warn the living? How do we warn the living that there's a need for repentance toward God? Since hell is agony and since hell is final, what is to be done to warn people so that they may not be in this place of torment? That's what the rich man is trying to figure out. That's what he's wrestling with. He thinks he has a solution. This is verses 27 to 31. He thinks that the scriptures are not sufficient warning, Moses and the prophets. He he looks at that and says, no, that's not sufficient. Why would he say that? Because it wasn't sufficient for him. So he he considers that. He says, Abraham says, let them hear Moses and the prophets. No, 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 that's not going to work. That didn't work for me. They need something more. How about this? What if if you send Lazarus, he died, but if they see him come back, that a man has risen from the dead, that will be a convincing enough sign for them to believe and to repent. But God's response given here by Abraham is no. If the scriptures are not believed and are not sufficient to bring about repentance, neither will they be convinced if they see a man come to them from the dead. Now Jesus, in in telling this story, speaks prophetically here. Like he speaks about things that really do happen in history. Right? The, The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel did not repent of their sin based on Moses and the prophets. And 
when Jesus actually did rise from the dead, neither did they then place their faith in him. So see, he was right. It actually happened in history. He speaks prophetically about what actually will happen. None of those things, neither the scriptures nor the resurrection, produced belief and repentance in the Pharisees. Now, let's ask the, question, let's ask the next question. Why not? Like, we would think like the appearance of someone risen from the dead would have a profound effect on us and lead to belief and repentance. Why didn't it have that effect on them? Because they weren't waiting for a sign. They weren't waiting for a spiritual salvation. They didn't think they were in need of that. They didn't see themselves as sick. They didn't see themselves as being in need of repentance. Like other people were. Not them. In their minds, they were fine. They didn't have anything to be concerned about. In other words, they were blind to their own need. That's why it didn't matter how great the sign put before them was. Blind people can't see anything. If you're trying to get a blind person to see something, it doesn't matter if you take the golf ball away and put an elephant in front of them. They still can't see. That's what it means to be blind. And that's the condition of the Pharisees. That's the term, blind is the term Jesus uses for them over and over in the Gospels. John 9, Matthew 15, Matthew 23. Well, what about you? Is this going to play out in your life too? Is this playing out in your life right now? If you have not repented of your own sins toward God and believed in the name of Jesus Christ to be saved from hell, you may be prospering physically. You may be way over the top prospering physically, but spiritually speaking, you are blind. It's very likely you don't think you need to be saved. That's for other people if it exists at all. You're not looking for a sign. You're not looking for a salvation from anything. There's nothing that I or anyone else could do or say or show that would convince you to change your mind. Your condition, in other words, is the same as these religious leaders of Israel. Now, how is that ever going to be remedied? That's the main problem under discussion in this passage. What is to be done? That, this was my condition for a long time in life. I've, I've told you about these things before. I, didn't, I simply did not see my own neediness. Oh, I, I saw it in other people. Like, I saw that really clearly. Like They have a lot of need, but not me. I didn't realize that about myself until I was 20. I thought I was good. And then one night when I wasn't looking for it and I wasn't expecting it, God broke into my life and showed me my overwhelming 
need. He showed me my, my pitiable condition apart from him. And there's nothing that can be done for you until God opens your eyes to see your own need. That is what the Pharisees should have seen the whole time that would have cured them of their blindness. The one thing that we all have to see is our own neediness, spiritually speaking. In fact, there's a really good picture of what we're like spiritually in this passage. Spiritually speaking, we're very much like Lazarus was physically. Laying at the gate, poor sick. I'm describing our own hearts. I'm describing our souls. Hungry, helpless, pitiable. We're slaves to sin. Spiritually speaking, we're desiring independence from God in every way. Rejecting his rule, rejecting his good law, worshiping other things. We're worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping sex. We're worshiping money. We're worshiping idols. We're self-important. We're self-righteous. We're self-justifying. We are disobedient. We are ungrateful. We don't want anything to do with God. This isn't just a description of you. This is a description of all of us. We are all Lazarus spiritually. And we have to recognize it and own it and ask God for mercy. But the first step is recognition. This is why when Jesus comes to preach and he gives this great initial sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, it's why the very first words out of his mouth for the greatest sermon ever given are, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who recognize their own spiritual poverty. It's the very first thing. It's the very first step toward health and reconciliation with God. Now, I can imagine how this passage gets preached in other places and in other churches. It would be very easy to come away from this passage and say, hey, the main point is that we all need to go out and recognize the needs around us. Go and serve and minister to the Lazaruses in your life, right? Don't, have, don't be so callous that you're closed off toward the needs of other people. Now, that's true. Of course that's true. We all have that responsibility as Christians to recognize and meet needs. That's one of the things that the gospel produces in, in us. But that's not the main point. The main point is not have your eyes open to the needs of others. The main point is have your eyes open to your own need. Why? Because the needs of others will be remedied in time and could be remedied by other people. That's a temporary problem. It's a temporary problem in this passage. Lazarus is taken care of at the end. The rich man's need, his failure to see his own neediness is not remedied. That's an eternal problem that never has a remedy. And that's why it's the main problem. The consequences of that failure, the failure to see your own spiritual poverty last forever. Uh, 
Now, the answer for those of us who recognize our spiritual need is not go and try to be better. It's not, wow, I'm a horrible person. I've got to try and do better. The answer is look to the Lord Jesus Christ who came to live the perfect life in your place and place your trust in that life that he lived and own it as your own by faith. The answer to your spiritual poverty is not work harder. It's trust in the life of Jesus given for you. Receive his merits by faith. He gets your sin. He died for it on the cross. You get his righteousness and are saved from hell. Don't try harder. Trust Jesus Christ. He is a powerful savior. He saves from hell. If you leave here today not believing in him and trusting him for salvation, you only prove that his words are true. The scriptures and a resurrection will not convince. Even your unbelief is confirmation that everything he says is true. There's no getting around Jesus Christ. You can't evade him. You can't avoid him. He is truth, and we all confirm his truth, either by rejecting him or worshiping him. We worship Jesus Christ as Son of God, Savior from hell, the risen and coming King. Amen.